In Galatians chapter 4. I don't know for what particular reason, but I have not gained great confidence in my text. My text is good, but for some reason I have not gained confidence in the understanding of it. But hopefully we'll gain something. I may come back and preach it again. Maybe I'll have clearer vision next week, but we'll do the best we can. Um, I do want to start with an introduction tonight uh, from Thomas Watson in a book called A Body of Divinity. Read the text, and then we'll look at this introduction, and hopefully, I hope that you could be encouraged from this text, because there's words here that should encourage your soul tonight. Uh, I do want you to remember the last verse of chapter 3, because it ended with heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise. That's what you have, or what you are as a result of faith. Chapter 4 begins with this same theme heirs. And he says in the ESV, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So that's our text tonight. There's this constant tension in Galatians with this issue of law and works, law and faith, and how a man is justified and it's important, I talk in, in prayer meeting this morning, it's important to understand, I said this last week, but I need to say again, it's important that we use the law rightly. So pre-conversion, before you are converted, the law is used to bring terror, to bring fear, to convince you of your guilt and your sin before God. The law does that, it's its purpose, but it's driving you to something else, or we should say, driving you to someone else. So the law is driving you to see your failure, but to see there's someone who can help you, who is Christ, that you would believe upon him. Now, once you become a Christian, how is the law to be used post-conversion? It's not like the law becomes like no use or no benefit. But what is the benefit or the use of the law post-conversion? The law is used to demonstrate that you are a Christian. Okay? Uh, we can put it in, a, in a, an example. I am, uh, I have become, uh, my last name is Easter because of my father and mother. I'm not doing what I do to gain that standing. 
I do what I do as a demonstration of that's who I am. By my very life, it demonstrates that this is my family. Thomas Watson, uh, it's, there's a lot to be said, but he does say this briefly, and I think it's a good way to put it concisely. And he says, what are, but, are, but are not works required in the covenant of grace? So just one short paragraph to answer the question, are works required in the covenant of grace? He says, yes, this is a faithful saying that they which believe in God be careful to maintain good works. That's quoting Titus 3.8. But the covenant of grace does not require works in the same manner as the covenant of works did. Something different between the two. In the first covenant, covenant of works, works were required as a condition of life. You had to do this to live. Well, in the second, the covenant of grace, they are required only as the signs of life. In the first covenant, works were required as a grounds for salvation. You had to do this to be saved. In the new covenant, they are required as evidences of our love to God. Do what we do, not to gain something. We do what we do because we love God. That's far different than trying to gain God's approval or earn God's approval. Then we're doing something because we love Him. In the first covenant, they were required to the justification, justification of our persons. In the new covenant, to the manifestation of our grace. They demonstrate that God has given us the gift of salvation free of charge. Much more to be said, but I thought a good introduction would be to remind us of those things. All right, in our text tonight, heirs by right and heirs by fact. So this word, heir. I want to take you to a passage tonight, and I want to point this passage to Christ, make some applications from it. But talking about an heir, there's this parable, and it's a wonderful parable, and I want you to see it. It's in Matthew chapter 21. And it's a beautiful passage that I think points to Christ very vividly. In Matthew 21 and verse 33, he says this in Matthew 21, 33. Hear then another parable. And so I want to use this because it talks about slave, son, and heir all in the same passage. He says, hear another parable. There's a master... Our passage is going to say we're under masters or guardians, tutors or guardians. There's a master of a house who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, and he dug a, dug a wine press in it. He built a tower, he leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his slaves, servants, slaves, bondservants, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants... They took these servants, and they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Well, again, he sent other servants, 
more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, notice the text, this is the heir. This is the one who's going to inherit the whole vineyard. Here's the heir. They say, let us kill him, and then we'll have his inheritance. I want you to see in this so far, the servants and the son especially is the heir to the vineyard. They recognize that. They're trying to kill him to steal the inheritance. Verse 39, they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, we will know this to be understood. They take him outside of Jerusalem, and they nail him to a tree. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, they said to him, well, he will put them, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and it's going to be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. <laughs> when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard this par- his parable, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Those against the Son lose everything under this just judgment. Those in the Son inherit everything in Him. In Christ, I, don't, I can't make it more encouraging than it is. In Christ, you are an heir to everything He owns. Everything that Christ has, you inherit as a son. This is the great transaction of the gospel. You go from slavery to sonship and become an heir. You become a partaker, Peter would say, of the divine nature. This is wonderful news. Now, Christ certainly, Christ himself, the Son of God, is an heir by right. (laughs) Certainly so. But his receiving the kingdom, in fact came via the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, it's factually worked out in history that the inheritance all belongs to him. Now, Christ was under the demands of the law during his whole life. We know that, and we we praise him for this. He's under the demands of the moral law, the ceremonial law, judicial law, all laws. He's under the demands of them, and he meets every one of them. After his death and resurrection, he has fulfilled every law. Now, we praise him, certainly because he's the only one who could do this. But in him, we have fulfilled all law because we're in him. Now, he fulfills the law. He fulfills all it demands. 
He reigns over the law. He's not subservient to it. He reigns over it. His fulfilling of the law has established his prerogative to give all things to all people who believe him. By faith alone, you receive it all. So it's his by right. It's ours by right. But also, we are heirs by fact. By fact. The Christian, under guardians and managers, until the time the Father has set. So we're heirs by fact, and this is all because of what Christ accomplished. What he did is a fact. It's reality. So listen to the way the New Testament would speak of us being heirs by fact. Romans 8, 17. We'll come back to a couple of passages in Romans again, but I just want you to hear how Paul says this in other places. And since we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I just, I don't know how to make you appreciate this. An heir of God and an heir of Christ. Look, if I put it in earthly examples, if your daddy is stinking rich, you hope you're an only child and you're written in the will. And you want to be the heir that inherits your daddy's billions. And you can't wait for the reading of the will because all your expectations is, is you get all of the stuff. You know, if your dad's a deadbeat and don't have nothing but two pennies, maybe you're not that excited. But if your dad's rich, you're really excited. We're talking about what God possesses. And he's saying to us, via the death of his son and his resurrection, you inherit everything in him. Look, every spiritual blessing in all the heavenly places are yours in Christ Jesus. This is true of every Christian. Everything your soul would desire, he has, and you inherit it. By fact, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And then in James 2.5, he says, listen to the compassion of James. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor... In the world to be rich in the faith. And not only rich in the faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which what? He has promised to those who love him. What a magnanimous blessing this is. Rich in the faith, heirs of the entire kingdom. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. According to what? According to the hope of eternal life. Even Old Testament saints understood this. Hebrews eleven seven says this about Noah. It says, by faith Noah. There's so many of those accounts in Hebrews 11, by faith, list a different character. Here it says, by faith Noah. He's being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, here's what Noah did. He constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this, he condemned the world. And what did he become? He became an heir. Noah became an heir of what? Righteousness. How did Noah get it? By faith. Noah inherits righteousness by faith. The same way we inherit all things is by faith. We become heirs. Romans 4, 13 and 14. This is the last one I want to refer to. For the promise to Abraham. So you got Noah, you got Abraham. The promise to Abraham to his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. The whole world. He would be an heir of the world. Well, how did that come to Abraham? It was not via the law. Well, then what was it? It was through the righteousness of faith. Abraham inherits it. For if the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs, if that was the case, then faith is null and the promise is void. But it doesn't work that way. All the inheritance is based on faith. Look, take a drop-dead, wicked, God-hating, rebellious sinner and insert faith and everything is changed. He becomes, by faith, a child of the living God and inherits everything that belongs to God. If you're lost in this room tonight and you don't know the future, know this, God holds everything and if you would believe his son, you can have it all. This is the promise of the gospel. I think that's possibly one reason that the Greek word for gospel means good news. Isn't it good news to know you inherit everything God has? You think how filthy and rotten we are as sinners, and you understand, if you understand the depravity of your heart, what you deserve, and you don't get it. But in opposite of what you deserve, you get grace and inherit everything that is beautiful, good, and lovely, and holy, and perfect. Everything that God has becomes yours in Christ. Hallelujah. I I don't know another word to say, but I, I can't seem to get past what is in the gospel and is made mine via faith in Christ. Why would someone not believe? Why would they not believe? Now, how is adoption done? Verses 5 and 6. i give you three, uh, a few. Number one, how is adoption done? It is God's prerogative. And you see this in verses 5 and 6. You see it there in the text. Uh, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might have adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his son into the world. that He might redeem, uh, it, huh, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. God's prerogative God sets the time when he would decisively act. Here's God's primary action for adoption. God sent, his own volition, his son. Now, that tells us something, right? You cannot send something 
you cannot send someone unless they exist. You can't send nothing to become something. He sent the eternal Son who resided in heaven to enter time and history in the world. So in sending the Son, it reminds us of the eternity of the Son. He already existed. He was fully divine before the creation of the world. And I also want to note, Christ was not forced to come, but he willingly came. Now, God sent his Son. He brought him forth into the world through a woman. Now, there's a lot could be said, and commentaries spill a lot of ink here, but all we need to be understanding tonight is, is this is the incarnation. Deity has been clothed with humanity. This message, this passage here is not so much about the woman or about Mary, it's about him being clothed in humanity. We know the verse, we've read it, many of you have memorized it, so we repeat it one more time. The beauty of it is there. John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full, full of grace and truth. God set the time. God sent the Son. God brought Him forth, clothed in human flesh. God provided a law keeper. Under law. He was born under law. Jesus was under the mandate of the law. He met the demands of all of God's law. All the implications of the law. Christ met them all. He perfectly adhered to the law in thought, in word, and in deed. If we rephrase the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't miss an iota or a dot. Every single little mark in the Old Testament law, Christ fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus succeeded where every other man failed. He's the only one. I don't want to venture off too far. It just aggravates me to no end. The applause and the praise and all the hoopla that men will give other men. Why is there not more praise given to Christ? People lose their ever-loving mind because some guy can run down a field and catch a ball. Or they lose their whole day to see some little white ball go in a hole that somebody cut in the grass. And they clap. People stand in a hundred degree weather on the side of a golf course and walk five miles to see them put a ball in a cup. I don't understand how goofy people can be when we don't have any sense of praise for one like Christ who met every demand of the law perfectly in our place and that if we would believe in him he would give us all things it seems like there should be more praise and adoration of one like this and God's prerogative and then God's purpose why would he do such work like this through his son well God's purpose was to redeem. You see that in verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. Christ was under the law. The demands of the law, he met them all. We were under the law and we fell all the time. So we needed a redeemer to purchase us out from under this. This word for to redeem. To secure deliverance of. To liberate To secure my deliverance from certain death. 
certain confinement, I am released. As previously stated in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13, he said, Paul said in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do this? He became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who's hung upon a tree. Who do you know that would suffer your penalty in your place to become the curse of God that you could be go, go free? Why, why did Christ have to be enclosed in humanity? How, why did he have to come and die on a cross? I love Psalm 49 because of what it says. Now, in Psalm 49, 7 through 9, it talks about the price of redemption. So to redeem. The price is very high. It could not be fulfilled by mortal or fallen man. We had to have a God-man to redeem us. This is what the psalmist says, Psalm 49, 7. Truly, no man can ransom another. Just a mortal man, fallen sinful creature, has not the ability to redeem another, to ransom another. Or to give God the price of his life. I couldn't redeem you if I wanted to. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to offer my life and die in your place. It's, I don't have the worth in me to purchase you or to forgive you of your sin. Why? The ransom of their life is costly. Could never satisfy or suffice that they would live on and never see the pit. God himself would have to come and enclose himself in human flesh and substitute in your place in order for you to be redeemed. There's no other way. It's just too costly. This price is way too high. So we value Christ because he's unique. There's no one else in his zip code. There's no one else comparable. There's no one that can do what Christ has done. Oh, that you would grab a hold of him and be overwhelmed with what benefits are in him. To redeem us, that was God's purpose. And secondly, it was his purpose to adopt us. What a blessing <laughs> to, to adopt us. Look there in verse 6 again. Uh, I mean, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. And it says, here's the purpose again, that we might receive adoption as sons. To obtain something, to receive something. Like, here the word is used not for a potential something but for the reality of something. We actually did receive something. Paul promises, like he uses this word, he promises an inheritance when he speaks to the Colossians. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. This is not potentiality. This is what every believer will receive. So think about it. You're in an orphanage. And you don't have a mom, you don't have a dad, and spiritually speaking, the only one who will take credit for you is the devil. 
You know, he says, says in John 8, your father the devil. See, you're orphaned, you're rebellious, you're out here in the, in, in the, in the smugs of the universe, if you will, and the only one who will claim you is the devil. And you're like, man, I got the bad rap in my family. My family tree looks very, very corrupt. And then there you are in your wicked, sinful squalor, living in your selfishness, your pride, and your rebellion, and the king of glory walks into your hood. The king of glory walks in in the midst of all of this fallenness and all of this darkness, and he says, I will adopt you. I'm going to give you adoption. I'm going to take you out of the orphanage, and I'm going to bring you to my house, and everything I have belongs to you. Now, I'm not a fan of him anymore, but I remember his adoption story, Dr. Russell Moore. And I love that adoption story because when he went to Russia to adopt those kids, and it's like when they, I mean, it was, he describes it so vividly how wicked and depraved this orphanage was. And they adopt that boy out of there, and they, they're so happy, they're so excited, they just love this kid they've adopted. They can't wait to shower this kid with all these great things. And they got all this stuff in their mind at home this bedroom, and all this food, and this pantry. They just can't wait to get this baby home that they've adopted, this little boy they've adopted. And when they're driving away from the orphanage, the kids are looking out the back glass wanting to go back because that's the only thing they knew. They didn't understand what lied before them. They didn't understand what was out there in the future. And I think that's sometimes how we are. We keep looking back to the world and God's going, look, my pantry is full. Everything you need in abundance. I have it all at my house and you are my son. Whatever you need, I'm a good father, and I will provide it for you. I love you so much that I sent my son to pay the price for you, that you could be redeemed out of the squalor you were in, and I could make you a precious treasure, and you would be called by my name. And on top of that, in this adoption, everything I own, you inherit it all. Extremely abundantly, overwhelmingly rich is the man of faith. Do you believe that tonight? That in this world, in all of the things that depress us, aggravate us, beat us down, make us sometimes wonder what we're even doing here, I mean, in all of that, could you look up Could you look up for a moment tonight and realize the beauty, the glory, the mercy of the God of heaven that he would send forth the way and the means that you could be adopted and become an heir of God? That it's like, it's almost like I can hear people respond, man, what do I have to do to get in on this deal? Believe Christ. Believe Christ. It's like Spurgeon said, he said, I was waiting on 50 things to do, and all this guy said was, look, 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 look unto me and be ye saved. All ye the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And Spurgeon said, I looked and I looked until I looked my eyes out. Just look to Christ. Believe Christ and inherit everything in him Oh, I hope you could be encouraged by these things tonight. 
adoption. A couple of more words. We won't do point three, but we'll stop with this one. But think, think again of adoption. This thing received that we receive that's rea- reality is adoption. It's applied to those who believe in Christ. They are accepted by God as God's children. Paul says this in a couple of other texts. In the same word, but just remember these thoughts. He says in Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption. But I, I like these words. Adoption to what? Adoption to whom? Adoption to himself. He, he's done this to adopt us to himself. Adopt us to himself as what? As sons. How could we be sons of God? Via or through Jesus Christ. That's the way, the means we are adopted. This is in accordance with the purpose of his will. And then in Romans 8.15, which is a glorious passage, all the verses there around 15, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. That's not what we received. To fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. And it's through this spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. We have an intimate relationship with the God of heaven. And the spirit assures us of this as we cry out to him in communion in prayer. We cry out, Abba, Father. Church, tonight, at least grab this before you go home. As a believer in Christ, you have a father. Or we can flip it. A father has you. All this goofy philosophy and worldly wisdom that they have out there, and you are the way you are because you, you, you know, your parents divorced, and you don't know who your dad was, and you was raised over here, and your dad did this and ran off, and he got married three more times, and so your society has made you the way you are. Look, come to the Bible. Let's say your dad ran off and got married 72 times with 50 different women, whatever it is. And the whole situation is horrible. All of that's true, you say. But you came to church to buy the Word Baptist Church on the last Sunday night of August, and this is what you heard. If I believe Christ, I can have a new father. I can have one who loves me and cares for me and invests in me. And I'll have a father who's written a will that I get to inherit everything he owns. Stop living in that of the past and receive by the present faith in Christ and say, I am now a child of the living God. And by the way, there's a lot of things I love about adoption spiritually as we go through the Bible, but this is the climax I love more than anything else about adoption. There is no earthly analogies that work with this part. This is unique. You see, adoption grants us not only a new legal standing and not only a new family relationship. Are you ready? It grants us a new image. You say, what do you mean? Now, in our society, now Robbie and Emily are trying to adopt, praise God, and I hope that works, and I, I pray God give them the right kid at the right time. And they can adopt a kid, and they can love a kid, But they cannot impute their spirit into the child. And they can't make that child have their nature, if you will. 
It's impossible. You can't do that. But here, in spiritual speaking, in the Bible, that's what happens with us. We receive the very Spirit of the Son of God within us. This is unique. God adopts us. He imparts the Spirit of His Son to dwell in our hearts. You ever, you ever listen to some of these wacky charismatics? And they, they want to condemn Baptists because we don't have the baptism of the Spirit or we don't have the Holy Spirit in some regard. You know, they say stuff like that. I don't know what Baptists they're referring to. But this is the kind of Baptists we are. We believe Christ and God has taken the Spirit and then put Him in us that He would dwell in us. We are Spirit-filled, faith believers in Christ, and we inherit everything that God possesses. And do notice in our passage, God sent his Son, and God sent his Spirit, and you have the Trinity laid out in this passage in the securing of you becoming an heir as an adopted child of God, and you are children of God as believers, John would say, now. So as you go out this week, live in accordance with who you are. Live in accordance with who you are. Know your identity. Unless you have not believed. And all I can do is encourage you to turn from yourself and look unto Christ.